The rebellions of 1549 were among the largest and most important rebellions of Tudor England. Today's guest has called them the last medieval popular rebellions and argues that they led to the making of modern England. Today we're going to talk about one of those rebellions in particular, the East Anglian Rebellion of 1549, which is known as Kett's Rebellion after its leader, Robert Kett. How did it happen? What did the rebels hope to achieve? And why was it so brutally repressed? My guest today is Professor Andy Wood, who is Professor of Social History at the University of Durham. Andy held teaching posts at the universities of East London, Liverpool and East Anglia before joining Durham, as well as a whole clutch of fellowships at various prestigious places. He's a prolific author. His fourth book, The Memory of the People, Custom and Popular Senses of the Past in Early Modern England, won the American Historical Association's Leo Gershoy Award. He's currently writing two more books, I Predict a Riot, A History of the World in Twelve Rebellions, and Letters of Blood and Fire, Authority and Resistance in England, 1500 to 1640. And Rebellion and Resistance are our themes today as we take up the subject of one of his earlier works, The 1549 Rebellions and the Making of Early Modern England. Andy, thank you so very much for coming on Not Just the Tudors. I'm very excited to talk to you about rebellions in general, but particularly about this rebellion of 1549, because you're so brilliant on it, frankly. I wonder if we could start perhaps by getting a sense of the context of this rebellion of 1549 before we go into explaining what it was and who it was and how it happened. I suppose maybe could you set the scene for the political and social, economic, even the religious changes, in brief, (laughs) of the early 16th century that you think are producing the conditions for it to happen? Yeah. Well, Henry VIII dies in 1547. He's succeeded by his young son, Edward VI, who, during his minority, the kingdom is governed by a council of leading aristocrats and churchmen headed by the Duke of Somerset, Edward's uncle. And Somerset is a radical Protestant, So he's a religious reformer. He's also a social reformer. He believes that English society has gone through changes which have encouraged what he sees as covetousness and avarice. And in particular, this is related to the enclosure of common land. So Somerset is trying to force through a series of changes at the political centre, which will encourage a return to what he sees as sort of traditional virtues. Most importantly, the removal of enclosures on the commons, which he sees as something which is oppressing the poor commons. And he's opposed in this by the Earl of Warwick, John Dudley, much more sort of conservative faction within the council. And what's been happening over the previous 70 or 80 years is the steady incremental piecemeal development of agrarian capitalism on a local level leading to social division, social conflict, particularly around the issue of the enclosure of the commons, but also food prices, the increase of rents, series of changes which common people are very antagonistic towards. So Somerset is seen as someone who is 
trying to force through a social agenda, which is about a return to what you might call medieval social virtues. But he's also trying to force through an agenda of religious change. So the chantries, for example, are dissolved. A new prayer book in English is introduced. A new version of the Bible is introduced in 1549. And so there's a sort of speeding up of the Protestant Reformation, which had, in a sense, been on the hold in the latter years of the reign of Henry VIII. And the result of this is that there are a series of risings, crossing, originating in Somerset, and then spreading down the Thames Valley in support of Somerset's social agenda. And then in the West Country, there's a pro-Catholic rising, which is opposed to his religious agenda. And the Western Rising is something which represents a major military challenge to Somerset's regime. So by June, July 1549, much of Southern England is in arms against the gentry. And Somerset calls a meeting of the entry of those parts of England that still haven't experienced a rising at Windsor Castle on the 1st of July, 1549. So the East Anglian gentry, in East Anglia there hasn't yet been any trouble, are called away to this meeting at Windsor Castle to discuss the formation of a large army that will march down through the Thames Valley to confront the West Country rebels. And while they're away, between the 6th and the 8th of July, Across East Anglia, there are a series of coordinated insurrections which close East Anglia off to royal government. And that rebellion in Norfolk originates at Wyndham, which is a market town just near Norwich. Norwich at this time is the second largest city in the British Isles. And what are described by the chronicler Hollinshed as the scum and dregs of Norwich meet with the rebellious commons of Norfolk at Wyndham, where they hatch the plot to rise in rebellion against the gentry. You mentioned the enclosure of common land. Why did that matter so much to common people? What was the significance of the common land to them? Well, the period seeing increasing landlessness. More and more of the working population are working for wages on rich farmers' estates rather than as classic sort of peasant autonomous cultivators. So they're becoming heavily dependent on wages, which is supplemented with access to the commons. So you've got a couple of cows. That means that you can pasture your cows on the common, which gives you butter and milk and cheese to feed your kids or to sell for money. So having a couple of cows is really useful. Similarly, pigs, perhaps a few sheep, geese, these are all animals that if you've got access to the commons, that you'll be able to maintain and that will supplement your earnings. The other really important thing that the commons give you is fuel. And the mid-16th century thing is a period of climate change, the development of the so-called Little Ice Age. So the climate's getting worse. So having fuel means that you can heat your homes, you can keep your home warm during the winter. So the commons are really important for ordinary people, as economically they represent a really important contribution to their otherwise quite fragile domestic economies. 
but they're also important symbolically because what they represent is community, common interest, and a degree of sort of social autonomy for poor working people who otherwise are quite marginal within village society. And so what do you mean by enclosure in this period? What is happening to these commons? And is it just about enclosure or are there other things that are causing the terrific discontent that has led to this closure of this part of the country to royal government? What it means in material terms is a rich farmer or a lord of the manor will come along and decide that he wants to take a chunk out of the commons and to turn it into parkland in the case of the gentry or to turn it into arable fields in the case of a rich farmer. And so they'll erect fences or ditches which physically separate that part of the enclosed commons off from the remaining area that's available to ordinary people. So physically, that's what enclosure represents. So it represents, in a sense, a sort of privatisation of common resources. The other issues are about increases in rents, gentry control of the commons, they were placing large sheep flocks on the commons so that poorer people aren't able to exercise their own rights. Control of village office, representation in parliament, the attempt on the part of some leading noble families to reintroduce serfdom, which is really upsetting people because even if you yourself having serfdom imposed upon you, then it's regarded as an offensive against ordinary people's rights. So there are a series of agrarian complaints which have been brewing up for a while and which are ignited by Somerset's social policies, by Somerset's desire to see the enclosures removed and the reintroduction of these sort of old medieval social virtues of community and reciprocity and charity and so on. It's interesting because apart from those who are trying to reintroduce serfdom, a lot of the things you're talking about are things that we kind of take for granted, that the lands of this country are not primarily available to us to use and that we pay rents quite often, (laughs) horrible leasehold rents if you're in London, uh, even if you think you own it. And this culture, basically, of capitalism that is being introduced in this period of time. But it is, for people in the 16th century, this fundamental change from how they think society should be run and to how it's being run. This kind of tension between things being in the public good and now being turned into private resources. And I think this change is something that is quite hard for us to get our heads around because we're just so used to it now. Yeah, so the 16th century is this time of enormous economic and social change in England, and it's creating an economy and a society that is markedly different from that of the late 15th century, that's markedly different from a world that the rebels' grandparents would have known, and which is still within living memory. So although historians talk about the year 1549 as part of what they compartmentalise as the early modern period. In the heads of the rebels, they're still sort of in the medieval period. Their sense of social responsibilities and reciprocities and relationships, their sense of neighbourhood and collective values 
These are people who live lives which are much more interdependent than ours. They're not individualistic people like we are today. They're people who are used to sharing a lot and to supporting one another a lot. And those are values that are coming under attack in the middle years of the 16th century. So the struggle in 1549 is not just an economic struggle over resources. It's also a kind of political struggle over what it means to be a member of a community. And so the rebels talk about what they call commonwealths. In Kent and Surrey and Sussex, and are led by a man called Captain Commonwealth, which I always think is rather brilliant. And so they see themselves as standing for these kind of collective shared values against avaricious and covetous gentry class. So there are small-scale rebellions happening in lots of places, but why do you think it's the one in East Anglia that becomes so large and is the one we remember? What happens elsewhere is, in most areas, the rebels are persuaded to return home and return for a consideration of their grievances. Not everywhere. The rebellion in the West Country is very, very violent. But also in Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire, there is a series of pitch battles with the gentry. But in Suffolk, in Essex, in the southeast of England, in the South Midlands, most of the rebels are persuaded to depart by July, August 1549. But in Norfolk, things are different. And my theory is the reason that the Norfolk Rebellion turns so violent has to do with the particularly vehement social conflicts that are at work within Norfolk society, where you've got common people who are used to being politically assertive. So you've got this sort of perfect storm in Norfolk where the social conflicts that are characteristic of the rest of the country as well are particularly intense. And for that reason, the Norfolk rebels refuse to disarm when they're asked to do so by royal heralds that are sent by Somerset to negotiate with them. So it leads to pitch battles, basically. So let's pick up the story. You got us to Wyndham and we want to find out what happened after that. And also perhaps you could introduce the man after whom the rebellion is known, Robert Kett, the leader, who seems a pretty unlikely rebel. So we're in Wyndham, the 5th to the 8th of July, 1549. And the rebels convene in the course of what's known as the Wyndham Game, which is a dramatic reconstruction of the life of Thomas Beckett. And Beckett is associated with opposition to royal tyranny and to royal taxation. And actually the celebration of the life of Thomas Beckett had been made illegal under Henry VIII. And Beckett's bones are exhumed from Canterbury Cathedral and are put on trial for treason. And the bones are found guilty of treason and then ritually burned. So merely commemorating the life of Thomas of Beckett is itself associated with rebellion. So the rebels go marching around the Wyndham area, knocking down enclosures, filling in ditches, breaking fences. And they march onto the land of Robert Cat and start to break down enclosures that he has made. So Cat himself is an enclosure. It's one of the ironies of the rebellion. 
And Robert Kett, by this point, is aged 59. He's a substantial landowner. He's a yeoman, farmer and a tanner. He's the second wealthiest man in Wyndham. He's used to holding office and the local guilds dedicated to Beckett. He's a powerful figure. He's literate. And he's described by the chronicler Hollingshed as a great tall man with a loud voice. That's all we know about Robert Kett himself. And he marches out to confront the rebels, who then presumably berate him for having enclosed the land in the first place. And he then says he will lead them in what Hollingshed says is an attempt to subdue the power of great men, is what he says. And so he then places himself in a leadership role over the rebellion, and the rebels march off towards Norwich. Much has been made in the past of the religious drivers of the rebellion of the same year in the southwest that it was conservative in religion and wanting to turn the clock back to medieval Catholicism and that the rebellion in East Anglia was Protestant in nature. But you think that's been overstated. Why? Well, I think the evidence for the alleged Protestantism of the Norfolk rebels has been over-exaggerated. I think the rebels are actually much more divided in their attitude to the Reformation in Norfolk than a lot of historians have allowed. And they tended, as you say, to build up a contrast between Catholic rebels in the West and Protestant rebels in the East. The rebels in the West are clearly very, very opposed to the Protestant Reformation. But my feeling is that the evidence for Norfolk points towards the rebels being quite divided over the issue of religion. For example, once the rebels established themselves at the camp at Mousehold Heath, which we'll come on to in a minute, Matthew Parker, who at this point is the Master of Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, and then Elizabeth's reign is to become the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's a leading reformer goes to address the rebels about the sin of rebellion and he stands up in this oak tree which the rebels call the oak of reformation under which the rebel council meets and he tries to present a sermon to the rebels and they all poke him with sticks and throw stones at him and poke with spears and stuff so they're obviously not very keen on listening to the message of the protestant reformation and they drive him off similarly the rebels attack buildings that are associated with the Reformation. So things like reformed hospitals and chapels, which have been cleansed and purified along the lines of the Protestant changes to church furnishings. And rebels attack these. And so they are associated with attacks on the physical emblems of Protestantism. On the other hand, when the rebels put together their list of grievances, for the attention of Protector Somerset, they do say that they want their children to learn the Protestant primer and the Bible in English. But then it's a question of who drew up those articles. So I would say that the rebels are actually quite divided over the issue of religion in Norfolk. Okay, so we've got them marching towards Norwich. What sort of scale of rebellion are we talking? How many people? By the time they get to Norwich, the historian Alexander Neville says that the rebels number 20,000. 
Now, I think that's an exaggeration, but it gives you some sense of the size of the rebellion, but it's very substantial. And the rebels arrive on the west side of the city of Norwich on the 22nd of July, and they are met there by representatives of the city's poor. And they march around the city and establish a camp on Mousehold Heath, which in those days was a large area of common land, which covered the eastern side of the city and stretched about 12 miles out into the countryside and was intercommoned both by the city's poor and by the poor of the countryside. So physically, it represents the kind of unity of the interests of both urban and rural poor people. And had long been a site of conflict with richer sheep farmers. And Mousehold has got this area of woodland called Thorpe Wood. And there's a big oak tree in the middle of Thorpe Wood, which I mentioned a minute ago, which the rebels label the Oak of Reformation. And they establish a rebel camp there, which mirrors the form of local government in that the rebel council, which is headed by Robert Gett, is made up of representatives of the hundreds of Norfolk. And a hundred is a unit of local government, so perhaps eight or ten villages. And that's the means by which local government is organised. And so effectively what they're doing is they're taking over the administration of the county and turning it into a form of rebel organisation. And what happens is, after they've established their camp there, on the 24th of July, a royal herald comes to see Robert Catt to receive his complaints. And the list of those complaints survives in the British Library, in the Harley Manuscripts. And it's often referred to as Catt's demands being in rebellion. Now, that's the name that's given to it by the 17th century historian and antiquarian Robert Harley. It's not actually the name of the document. The document doesn't actually have a name, but it begins with this list of the members of the rebel council and the hundreds that they represent. And it then goes on to lay out a list of what the rebel complaints are about. And as we've discussed, they're about enclosure, they're about local government, they're about gentry corruption, they are about parliamentary representation, about opposition to serfdom. There's a very resonant article about serfdom which goes, we pray that all bondmen should be made free for God made all free with his precious blood shedding. So it's an appeal to the manumission at Calvary, Christ's sacrifice in order to redeem humanity. And the argument that's being made is that inequality is ungodly, that Christ redeemed all of humanity. So why should there be an institution such as serfdom? So the rebels present the herald with this list of complaints. And he then says, well, you can go home now because we've received your complaints and we'll consider them. And the rebels say, no, we're not going to go home, we're going to stay here. And he says, well, in that case, then I have to denounce you as traitors. And so some of the rebels then return but most of them stay up on Mousehold. And at this point, having been denounced as traitors, a line has sort of been drawn between the rebels and royal authority. 
It's interesting that you mentioned that because I was wondering about the nature of the sources, which I think is a very interesting question. Let's just come back to that a second, though, because I want to ask you about how they're operating at Mousehold, because it sounds like they're creating a sense of bureaucracy, really, an administration that they are well organised, you know, that they have this document where they're saying, okay, this person is representing this hundred and this person is representing this. Also testifies to their sort of claim to legitimacy. We speak for the people. How did they operate when they were on Mousehold? It is quite sort of bureaucratic. It's a very English rebellion, you know. (laughs) It's all very orderly. And I think one of the issues is that historians have been able to trace the backgrounds of a number of the rebel leadership. And they tend to be men who are literate, office-holding, middling sort, relatively well-off, used to wielding authority on a local level, also relatively aged. Age and authority are linked in early modern society. So you've got this rebel leadership that's quite used to wielding authority, that's made up of local authority figures. But a lot of the rebel rank and file are younger men who are more likely to be wage labourers, who are sort of bitter and angry. And I think one of the issues that's at work in 1549 And the reason that Robert Kett takes on the leadership of the rebellion is an anxiety about controlling this younger, more militant, more bolshy, angry rebel rank and file. And it's interesting, this question about how we know what we know, because we've got this wonderful manuscript in the British Library, but otherwise I imagine that much of our information comes from chroniclers who are relatively hostile to those rebelling. Do you think we can hear the voices of the rebels to pose that sort of classic question? Yeah, I think we can, yeah. There are three chronicle accounts. There's one written incomplete chronicle account, which only survives in manuscript, again in the British Library, probably written by Nicholas Southerton, who's part of a mercantile elite family in Norwich. And that probably is the earliest manuscript account. It's not dated, but it's probably 1560s. Then there's a printed account, originally written in Latin in 1575 and translated into English in 1615, which is written by Alexander Neville, who is the secretary to Archbishop Harker, whom I mentioned earlier. And he's clearly interviewed his master for the history. And so that survives in editions of 1575 and 1581. It's used extensively by Raphael Hollinshed when he publishes his History of the British Isles in 1577 and a second edition in 1586, together with editions which Hollinshed himself has sort of dug up from within local tradition about Cat. All of those histories are written about a generation later. Mm. And as you say, they're all very hostile to the rebels because they have to be, because of conditions of censorship that are operative in Tudor society. Writing history can be quite dangerous in Tudor society. But the argument goes that in order for the rebel voice to be criticised, it has, first of all, to be represented. And so there are large sections of the chronicles which represent the rebel voice 
in quite sympathetic terms. But the really important thing about these histories is that it gives us a quite detailed narrative framework within which to set up a surviving manuscript source material. Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So the rebels have now been declared to be traitors. The government has got their list of demands but isn't acting on them any time soon, I suppose. What happens next? Well, the rebels have been declared as traitors. The rebels then storm Norwich and they march down the east side of the city. And the city's defenders fire on them from an artillery position called the Cow Tower. They also fire arrows at the rebels. The rebel rank and file are described as britchless boys that come bare-arsed. <laughs> and the rebel boys get these arrows stuck in their bottoms, which they then pull the arrows out and fire back. And allegedly the sight of these naked rebels' bottoms has the effect of taking the heart out of the city's defenders, and they flee in horror. So the rebels swim across the River Wensum and storm into the city and seize control of Norwich. So that's on the 24th of August. Meanwhile, back in London, a royal army is being organised under the leadership of the Marquis of Northampton and Edmund Lord Sheffield, which numbers about one and a half thousand men. And that arrives in Norwich on the 31st of July. And the rebels confront Northampton's army. They distract Northampton to the north side of the city 
And while he's away negotiating with one of the rebel leaders, the rebels again storm across the east side of the city, come marching up past the great hospital on the east side, where they confront Sheffield and a group of the royal forces under his command. And Sheffield is pulled from his horse by a butcher called Fulk, who hacks him to death outside an alehouse, which today is called the Adam and Eve, and where allegedly, if you drink six pints of Adams, you'll see the ghost of Lord Sheffield appear before you. Quite an interesting research project. And so Sheffield, having been, the heart goes out of the Royal Army, and they flee from the city. So again, the rebels seize control of the city for the second time, having now fought two pitched battles, in both of which have they been successful. And so the city descends into red terror as the rebels go marching around, seizing merchants who are believed to be sympathetic to the royal cause and beating them up and humiliating them. And they also capture a number of leading Norfolk gentry who significantly they imprison in the castle and in the guild hall, whom they don't kill, but they sort of rough them up and rip their clothes and clothes in this society are a badge of rank. So what they're aiming to do is to humiliate the local gentry, whom they haul before the rebel council under the Oak of Reformation and effectively put on trial for having oppressed the commons. So again, we're back to this question about rebel organisation. It feels genuinely revolutionary for them to be turning the social hierarchy upside down in this way. When their avowed aim as I understand it, is something quite conservative with a small c, you know, trying to turn a society back. Do you think those things are in contradiction at all? Yeah, they are. The whole business about 1549 is very contradictory. You know, you've got a rebellion in support of central government, but that is a rebellion against central government. You've got a rebellion that's partly pro-Protestant and partly pro-Catholic. It's all a rebellion that's led by establishment figures, but where the rank and file are much more militant. The whole thing is very contradictory. It's a rebellion, not a revolution, you know? I think the thing with a revolution is you have to have a kind of worked out plan as to how you want to reconstruct society from the bottom up. And the rebels do have an alternative vision of society. That's apparent from the list of rebel complaints. But it's very much an attempt to return to society, to the state that it was in the late 15th century. So they repeatedly return to the date 1485, the first year of the reign of Henry VII, as the date at which they want things to be returned to. Whereas a revolution, if you think about, say, the English Revolution or the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution, these are attempts to radically reconstruct both the polity and in some respects, society, according to a pre-established plan. That might not entirely work with reference to the 1640s, but it definitely works with reference to 1789 and 1917. So in that respect, I wouldn't call it a revolution. I'd stick to the word rebellion, really. That's part of the problem, isn't it? Because by definition... They have no plan. <laughs> They're never going to succeed in some way. They've managed to hold off the royal armies. They've managed to hold the city twice. But in the end, 
they don't really have much hope, except, I suppose, if Protector Somerset suddenly does something really radical in their defence. What do you think they hope to achieve? I think the point about the rebellions, not just in Norfolk, but across England, is an attempt to push central government. They can see that central government's divided, it's conflicted, that these are conflicts that have been going on for some time in English society. And they can see what the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci would call a hegemonic crisis, a crisis of legitimacy at the centre of the state. Gramsci was interested in the concept of what he called hegemony, by which he meant cultural domination, the means by which consent is manufactured in order to sustain authority. And what the rebels are doing, I think, in Gramscian terms, is pressing at the limits of hegemony, the limits of domination, at a time at which there's a crisis of authority in central state. So the rebels now are in control again of the city. And again, they're marching around, capturing merchants and gentry and beating them up and putting them in the guild hall and taking them to trial at the Oak of Reformation, setting fire to merchant houses and generally having a good old time. Meanwhile, back in London, another royal army is being levied, numbering anywhere between 8,000 and 12,000, this time headed by John Dudley, the Earl of Warwick. Somerset's leading opponent. And Dudley is a military man. He's fought against the Scots very successfully and against the French. He's the sort of hard man of the mid-Tudor regime. And Dudley's army marches north via Cambridge and then on to Norwich. And it arrives outside the city of Norwich on the 22nd of August, 1549. And Dudley again sends a royal herald up to Mousehold Heath to negotiate with the rebels, to give them one last chance to disarm and return home. And the herald comes before the rebel leadership, before Robert Catt, and he denounces Catt as a traitor, but then attempts to negotiate with him. And what then happens is one of the rebel boys comes and defecates in front of the royal herald which one of the Royal Herald's soldiers then shoots the boy dead and the negotiations collapse. And so the Herald returns to Dudley and says, my Lord, you won't quite believe this, but... So Dudley then marches into the centre of Norwich, fights a battle in the marketplace where he seizes 50 rebels and he hangs them all from a market cross. So it's very clear the message that Dudley's sending. And for the next three days and nights, there's extensive street fighting within Norwich. A large part of the city is burned in the course of the fighting. And the bridges are broken, which is really damaging to the city's trade. And it seems that the rebels are starting to actually wear the royal forces down. And so Dudley gets his lieutenants at the house of a leading alderman called Augustine Stewart in the Tombland area of Norwich. And he takes his sword and he has his lieutenants kiss his sword as a sign that they're going to stand and fight. And the following day, a thousand German and Swiss Landsknechts, mercenaries, march into the city, firing their arquebuses into the air. And Dudley uses these mercenaries to cut the rebel supply lines 
some household heat. And at that time, a prophecy then goes amongst the rebel rank and file, that the country gruffs hobdick and hick with clubs and clouted shoon shall fill up Dussindale with blood of slaughtered bodies soon. So what that means is the country gruffs hobdick and hick means the country labourers with clubs and clouted shoon. Clouted shoon over heavy wooden clogs that ordinary people wear in the fields, which are used as a synonym for country labourers. So when you talk about clouted shoon, you mean the rural working class. Clubs and clouted shoon shall fill up Dussingdale. Now, Dussingdale's a valley just south of Mouseholt Heath, which in prophecies have been associated with a battle that was meant to be waged at some point in the future for some time. So Dussingdale will be filled with slaughtered bodies soon. So the rebels believe that if the country labourers go to Dussingdale and fight, they'll defeat the Royal Army. So they march to Dussingdale, and Dudley can see this because he's up in the spire of Norwich Cathedral and can see the rebel movements from a spire. So he marches his Landsknechts and his cavalry and artillery to Dussingdale, where the rebels have dug themselves in. And there's then a series of exchanges of artillery and arrows and musketry, in the course of which eventually the rebels are beaten down. And a group of the rebels run away, but another group stand and fight. And they intend to die fighting. But Dudley comes before them and promises that if they surrender, they will be treated mercifully. So some of the rebels say they can't trust him, but other rebels say no, they fought with him in Scotland back in 1548 and that he can be trusted. So the remaining rebels disarm. And by this point, Robert Kett has fled from a field and he's captured the following day and taken to Norwich Castle, where he's apparently personally interrogated by Dudley, the record of which hasn't survived. And what happens to those trusting rebels who have voluntarily disarmed themselves? Well, a lot of them are executed. There's a bit of a bloodbath across Norfolk, in Yarmouth as well as in Norwich. We don't have specific figures, but in Yarmouth it's said to number into the hundreds of men who are executed. At Magdalen Gates in the north side of the city, 30 men are hanged, drawn and quartered on a single day. Representatives of the Royal Rebel Council who fall into royal hands are hanged, drawn and quartered at the Oak of Reformation. And it's apparent from manorial court records that there's a lot of land transfers in the aftermath of 1549. as land which had been held by rebels who've been killed as being transferred at, at manorial courts. So it's a bit of a sort of white terror descends over the city. There's martial law operative within the city, so the records of this haven't survived. What does survive are the records of the Norwich Magistrates Court, the Court of Mayoralty, which deal with lower level political offences of seditious speech. So the mayoralty court can't hand out death sentences, but what it can do is it can whip and brand and mutilate those who are criticising royal authority. And there's a period of about two years, there's constant grumbling, which is manifesting itself in the form of seditious speech prosecutions, which are being heard by the court of mayoralty and people are being whipped, branded, having their ears cut off, stuff like that, by the court of mayoralty. So it's a bit of a grim business. So it's a very brutal repression 
we don't know how many, but we can probably estimate that the numbers are running into at least hundreds of people killed. And then it's actually there's an attempt to even stop people protesting in their speech after that point, and that's being repressed. I mean, it's quite exceptional, isn't it? Yeah. And at the same time, back over in the West Country, something very similar has happened. Because the rebels in the West Country, they fought a series of very violent pitch battles with royal forces under Lord Russell, and they eventually are defeated. And again, there's extensive repression in the West Country. So England, by the winter of 1549, is an unhappy place. As to Robert Kett, he and his brother William, who we haven't mentioned yet, but William is one of the rebel leadership as well. Robert and William Kett are taken to London, where they're put on trial at the court of King's Bench, the indictment for which survives in the National Archives. And they are sentenced to be hanged, drawn and quartered in Norwich. But they're returned to Norwich and actually Robert is hanged in chains from the walls of Norwich Castle. And William is hanged in chains from a tower of Wyndham Abbey. And their bodies stay up there for several years, rotting. And I suppose it's worth pointing out that this is on a scale that is absolutely equal with the numbers that we talk about being burnt by Mary I. And also that the person who's doing it is John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, who we later know as the Duke of Northumberland, who will take over the government of England and indeed later try and put Lady Jane Grey on the throne in place of Mary. Because the rebellion helps to bring down Protector Somerset. Would you say that's the case? Absolutely. Once Dudley returns to London, the regime goes into total collapse situation. Basically, the city of London won't extend loans to cover the costs of the army that's been levied. So the government collapses and Dudley launches a military coup against Somerset. So Somerset takes the young king to Hampton Court. And he apparently intends to fight Dudley. And what the Spanish ambassador describes as a thousand peasants, make that word what you will, arrive at Hampton Court and declare their support for Somerset. So it seems like we're going to have a civil war situation with this bizarre situation where the head of the government is leading a popular army against an army made of gentry and nobility. Really weird. But Somerset sort of falls back from that and decides he doesn't want to press the issue. And so Dudley seizes the king and has Somerset put on trial. And there's then a sort of complicated period of about 18 months where it's unclear what's going to happen to Somerset. But Dudley, who, as you say, by this point, is now Duke of Northumberland, eventually nails him and has him executed. And Dudley is now in the driving seat. But as you say, when Edward dies, he then sponsors the candidature of Lady Jane Grey, and the Dudley faction is pro-Protestant, whereas Queen Mary, who's based in East Anglia, notably, rallies an army within a county that is apparently pro-Protestant against Dudley. And there's actually a petition that survives in the aftermath of Mary's coup against Dudley which makes it clear that a number of Protestants support her because they hate Dudley so much. So there's a kind of long-term kickback from 1549 in the form of a struggle over the crown in 1553, 
where the people of East Anglia are clearly supporting Mary, not just on grounds of religion, but also on the grounds of their hatred for Dudleys. But you see this as a turning point in English political history more generally, or perhaps English social history as well. Why do you think it's so important as a mark of change in the 16th century? Well, in a lot of ways, what we're dealing with is a late medieval popular rebellion with Reformation politics grafted on top of it. It's got a lot more in common with the rebels of 1381 and 1450 than it has with the English Revolution of the 1640s, even though the 1640s is closer in time. And as I say, is arbitrarily seen as part of the so-called early modern period by academic historians. 1549 is really a late medieval rebellion and it's the last late medieval rebellion. So it's the last attempt on the part of common people to challenge state authority through large scale armed violence. And after that, English society becomes increasingly litigious. The kind of people whom had led the rebellion in 1549, these so-called middling sort of men, these wealthy office holding elite figures in local society like Robert Catt, increasingly side with central authority. And so you get the development by Elizabeth's period of a much more flexible, inclusive state, reliant upon the participation of the descendants of Robert Catt, men and women like Robert Catt, who increasingly are coming to see themselves as more aligned with the interests of the central state than with their poorer neighbours. Alongside that, the later 16th century also sees the withdrawal of the gentry and nobility, not everywhere, but from a lot of those local conflicts that had led to rebellion in 1549. I think that 1549 sets up a sort of shockwave within elite society as they realise how close they'd come to kind of losing the plot, really. And so the gentry increasingly become sort of distant figures, happy to receive their rents, but no longer as aggressively associated with the development of agrarian capitalism and with the imposition of seniorial authority. So I'm not saying that Elizabethan England is a very happy place, because certainly by the 1590s it's not, but it's a much more stable regime in terms of its social composition than the case under the earlier Tudors. And so you see what I've called the making of early modern society coming out of 1549 as a kind of crisis moment. And one last question. How has the uprising of 1549 been remembered? Well, initially, the city goes out of its way to remember the rebellion as this attack on the fabric of the city, but also upon the ordered nature of the civic polity. And so they sponsor sermons which are to be given on Ket's Day, which is the 28th of August every year, date of the Battle of Dussindale, which condemn the sin of rebellion. And those sermons continue into the 17th century. And all the bells of the city's parishes, and there are 36 parishes in Norwich, are meant to be rang aloud on Ket's Day as a recognition of the defeat of the rebels. So there's a conscious civic attempt to remember the rebellion as this disaster. 
But the evidence of seditious speech prosecutions throughout the later 16th century point up examples of ordinary people across East Anglia who talk about Cat as an honest man, talk about the rebellion as this time when the commons were free, when they could eat mutton, when they were in charge over the gentry. There's a much more positive set of memories that's at work within local culture and which manifests itself archivally in the form of seditious speech prosecutions. So there's a struggle over the remembrance of Cat in the Elizabethan and early Stuart periods. Going further ahead in history, by the 1790s, Norwich has emerged as one of the great centres of English radicalism in the period that E.P. Thompson wrote about in the making of the English working class. So the radicals of the 1790s latch onto Cat as an instance of English radical history, as they see it, to counter claims that radicalism is an innovation of the French Revolution. They want to point out an English radical tradition. And it's from that point onwards, from the 1790s through the 19th and 20th century, that Norwich and Norfolk liberals, radicals, chartists, and eventually socialists latch onto Robert Catt as their sort of local hero, as their sort of local emblem of a radical history within Norfolk society. Andy, that has been the most fascinating and extraordinary journey through this rebellion in the short space of time, because I feel that you've really given us an insight into how society worked and what people hoped for and how things were changing in this period, as well as talking us through the chronology of this rebellion. Thank you very much for sharing your expertise. Well, thanks for inviting me, Susie. Finally, I'd be very grateful if you subscribe to Not Just the Tudors, if you haven't already, and if you'd rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.